Welcome to Within the Margins. I'm your host, Rachel Brown. Today, I'm sitting down with graduate student Jillian Kurtz to discuss their experiences being non-binary, a graduate student, and a professor at Emory University. With 1.2 million people in the United States identifying as non-binary, Kearns offers an important perspective to the Emory community of the difficulties and institutional boundaries that come with being gender non-conforming in academia. This is the first part in our two-episode series focusing on the non-binary Emory community. Don't forget to subscribe to Within the Margins to never miss an episode. Could you go ahead and give us your full name? Yeah, my name is Julian Kearns. I am actually um, a about to be a sixth year PhD student in the English department, um, and I teach literature classes. I've taught um, these sort of like intro first year writing courses, so 101 and 181, and I've also taught um, two upper level literature courses um, in the English department, and I think actually both of them were cross-listed with African-American studies. My specialization is in um, Caribbean literature, um, and my dissertation focuses predominantly on um, contemporary Caribbean women authors. That's so interesting. Um, What got you interested in that? Uh, So I'm from South Florida. I'm from the Florida Keys. And so I grew up around a lot of Caribbean culture Um, and a lot of Caribbean literature, and I I really took it for granted. It really just took me a while to realize that like Caribbean literature was not being talked about in the way that I assumed it always would be because it was a huge part of my life growing up. Um, and I can't really imagine like my interest in literature without my interest in Caribbean literature specifically. So I really just sort of circled back into that. And it's been uh, so amazing. That's so interesting. Wow. Um, kind of to shift gears a little bit. I should have done this sooner, but what um, are your pronouns and what do you feel like is your relationship with pronouns? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, my pronouns are they, them. Um, I started using them in 2019, so actually not that long ago. Um, I've identified as, I mean, I think queer folks tend to identify as a lot of things and come out over and over and over again forever. Um, but I... Uh, identified as genderqueer for a long time, but used she, her pronouns. Um, And I think that over the course of time, they, them started gaining more traction and being more available. And um, I started using them about two years ago and it just felt uh, very comfortable. It felt like um, if you have like an article of clothing that you put on and it's so comfortable, you forget that you're wearing it um, as opposed to like a scratchy sweater or like a stiff button up or something like it felt like something that was just like oh that's great this is this is actually where it is like this is home yeah that's so amazing oh wow um and how do you identify now and what does that kind of mean to you yeah so um I identify as a non-binary person um depending on who I'm talking to I'll also say like I'm a non-binary trans person um I think that that specification is very important to me specifically because of the way that um, the trans community has really done the bulk of labor for queer liberation. Um, And by the bulk, I mean like 99.9% of the labor has come from trans women of color. Um, And so I think like recognizing that verbally for myself um, is very important. Um, Yeah, so I identify as a a non-binary trans person 
also non-binary just occurs underneath the trans umbrella so that that's a technicality as well um but yeah i feel most comfortable i think around sort of like other non-binary trans gender queer gender non-conforming people um and usually have much more sort of like in-depth nuanced uh descriptions of that with folks who understand gender as um not like uh, man, woman, and other, but like a vast network of of experiences and and ideas and concepts. So, yeah. And do you feel like you found um, people within that community, or at least like your own community within Emory, that falls under those lines? Yes. Um, yeah, they absolutely exist. I feel like um, it's difficult at a. I think it's difficult at any institution, um, any any university is going to be a tricky space. I think that if you're talking especially about sort of like R1 institutions, it's also going to be tricky because of the racial and class demographics of the university, the politics of the university, and the... Um, and the kind of atmosphere that those universities create. Uh, I think there's a lot of space um, for improvement, especially at like sort of um, larger research institutions. I think sometimes smaller, uh, maybe liberal arts colleges have more space to to move around and shift. Um, But I think in terms of uh, understanding like the university as a business, it can be really hard to um, find those networks um, safely. Yeah, I understand definitely what you mean. Um, what has your experience been like kind of as a faculty member who is non-binary? So I think mine is kind of unique, um, and not just because everyone's is unique, but because of my specific timing with all of this. Um, so I came out as non-binary in like the summer of 2019, um, at which point I was about to start my fourth year, um, which is sort of a year where you're not as plugged into the department as you have been for the first three years. Um, The first move that I really made, um, because for me it wasn't entirely, uh, I wanted to keep some of this just to myself or to people that were close to me, so mostly the the move that I made was adding pronouns to my email signature. Um, And I didn't say anything, I didn't tell anyone anything, I just sort of like slipped they, them in there and just like, walked away slowly um but again like you know fall of 2019 um i was only responsible for attending one class one once a week um and so it wasn't really uh there wasn't there wasn't really any backlash because there was no contact um so i was able to sort of just like move in silence through all of this and be like yeah um And then, you know, 2020 started. Um, so I really had uh, no one to answer to. Um, and what, you, you know, we were asked not to come back from spring break. Um, so that was like right. mid-March. Um, and at that point, again, I still just had my pronouns in my email signature, hadn't really told anyone beyond like my, my immediate network. Um, and then we 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 left and we didn't I didn't talk to anyone for I mean I talked to like my friends but I wasn't talking to like faculty members I wasn't going to faculty meetings we weren't going to department things um I didn't need to correct anyone because nobody was speaking to me so it was like kind of a really like nice way to come out because I could do this all in yeah. private like just with 
my own self to contend with, right? Um, The first, and I think what's funny too, is that the first time that this actually became a practical thing that I had to consider was that I did teach in fall, the entire 2020-2021 academic year I was teaching. Um, So that was where things sort of, I had to start making decisions about like what I was telling and to whom and how. Um, So in fall of 2020, I did put my pronouns on my syllabus um, and I did put my pronouns in uh, my Canvas site and they were also in my email signature. Um, And I was still using my uh, birth name at that point, too. So that wasn't too uh, challenging. And in all honesty, I had no problems with any students ever. Um, It kind of didn't occur to me that I could have problems with students, though I know that that's very real. But I was very lucky and I had really lovely classes. I think also um, these were the two upper level English classes that I was teaching, and they were very specific focuses of literature. So fall of 2020, I was teaching a Caribbean literature course. Um, And then spring of 2021, I was teaching an Afrofuturistic literary course. So I think that those classes attracted um, a group of students that were going to not see my use of different pronouns as being a, a, a problem or anything to like stumble over. Um, I introduced myself in fall of 2020 as my name um, and gave my pronouns. And when we did sort of class exercises and like introductions, I asked everyone to give their pronouns as well. Um, no one had a problem with this. It went very smoothly. And in the only, I mean, obviously, I think in a class setting too, students aren't going to be referring to the instructor in third person at all. Um, but in terms of course evaluations, they will. And I think that probably 90% of my students either use no pronouns at all to be safe or they use they, them pronouns in the course evals. Um, and it was not a problem. I started using my current name, Julian, in December of 2020, so after my course had ended. Um, and then I started in January of this year to pursue a legal name change. Um, but that was, I think, the first time that I was sort of confronted with the bureaucracy of uh, existing as a gender nonconforming person in a large system. Um, and so that was tricky. That was, I was talking to my partner, I was talking to colleagues, and I was like, I'm not sure. Like, how do I explain to my students that I'm using a different name that appears in Canvas, that appears in Opus? You know, like uh, when they're registering for courses, I don't want them to get confused and apply, like register for a class that I will be teaching, but they won't recognize the name, right? Um, And so ultimately what I ended up doing was putting my name, my new name, my current name in my syllabus. So I, I like where this sort of course information is, I would write instructor, Julian Currents, they, them. And then underneath that, in parentheses, I wrote appears in Opus as, and then put my old name. Um, and again, I explained that during the first and then probably like after ad drop swap ends and I sort of do like secondary introductions. Um, I explained that basically in the exact same simplicity that I just did now. I'll be like, oh, my name is Julian Currents. It appears uh, in the... Uh, Canva or in the course atlas as something else. Um, I'm changing my name, but it's a slow process. And everyone was just like, okay, great. And it was never an issue. Um, I 
Also, I think it's helpful in a lot of ways because I strongly encourage all my students to refer to me by my first name um, because technically I'm not a professor and also referring to someone as instructor sounds very weird to me. Um, so when I was using my old name, I went by my first name. In this new semester, I was like, oh, just call me Julian. That's it. Um, I got a couple Dr. Currents, which is always very sweet. Uh, not, a, not, a, not a doctor. Um, but yeah, n did not have any problems at all. And I had two students actually take my fall course and then my spring course. And um, zero problems with updating the name. It was just like second nature. They just called me Julian as though nothing had ever happened. Um, so yeah, that was really nice. I will say though that like I feel like I, um, I'm very lucky, very privileged, but also like I have this sort of like rose-colored glasses approach to like how that went because because it was happening during a pandemic. I didn't have to go to department functions and correct older tenure track professors about my name. I didn't have to talk to administrators. Like I couldn't talk to anyone. So it was very much so just me, my colleagues, and then students that are a very different generation than the professors that are in the department. Right. Um, going through this information um so yeah that was a very it was a very lucky moment and a very like smooth transition as much as that can be socially i think i think the pandemic gave a lot of people a lot of space to discover a lot of things about themselves um once we're not being observed and once we don't have to perform constantly every second of the day i mean it did it for me as well right like I was able to expand my understanding of who I am. I was able to experiment with what I looked like on a daily basis. And I didn't have to fear any sort of like tension or awkwardness. I didn't have to fear showing up on campus dressed differently or looking differently and hoping that like older professors wouldn't be uncomfortable or say something awkward. Um, yeah, I mean, it was a massive privilege to be able to do a lot of that in private and just sort of work through what I wanted me to be um, and then just deliver that and then I was also very fortunate in that my primary audience were um, students who grew up in a generation where that's a lot more discussed and it's a lot more of a conversation um, than it was even when I was in college which doesn't seem that long ago but also seems like 800,000 years ago now so. <laughs> Um, kind of going back to something that you mentioned earlier um, and talking about your students, do you feel as a professor that the role or the authority is gendered? Yes. Yes. Sorry. <clears throat> yes, absolutely. Professorship is very gendered in a lot of ways. Um, I think that if we're just talking about um, like cis white women, um, cis white women have made a lot of progress in terms of equality not equity, but equality in the university system if we're talking about assistant professorships. Um, obviously, if we're talking about like tenured professors, that the percentage drops. Um, if you're talking about professors of color, that percentage drops. If you're talking about queer professors, that percentage drops. Um, but in terms of the kinds of labor that you're expected to do as a professor, that labor is deeply gendered. Um, and it's more gendered uh, the further you get away from white cisgendered masculinity. So I think like older white male professors are not held to any responsibility in terms of um, emotional labor for their students. Um, the second you sort of start walking further back from that or away from that, uh, you are expected to do a lot more. Um, and it's 
not questioned. Um, it's questioned by us, but it's not really listened to or discussed in a lot of ways, um, or it's discussed in eye rolls, right? So, yeah, I mean, I think that in terms of um, my experience as an instructor, I definitely was an instructor before I came out to my students as non-binary. Um, but even then, I was definitely doing heavy emotional labor for my students. And I did for sure recognize a increase in that when I came out as non-binary. Um, and this can be something sort of as minor, well, not minor, but something as sort of tangential to class as a student coming out to you. I've had students come out to me as non-binary or gender non-conforming in private asking like, oh, this is my identity, but please don't say this in class. So that's like amazing. And that's a huge privilege to be able to bear witness to a student experiencing that um, and to be a person uh, there for someone experiencing that. Um, but I've also had students experience deeply traumatizing non-academic crises and come to me for advice, um, which is something that I can almost guarantee would not happen um, to a lot of other instructors. And so I think right. that, um, you know, uh, being femme identified, being queer identified, being a faculty member of color, um, these individuals are often put, uh, like are often, a lot of emotional labors often put onto their shoulders. Um, mm -hmm. And not just from students, from faculty as well, and from other colleagues as well, um, but definitely from students. And it's not, the discrepancy is never addressed. And I don't even think that students really think about this that much. Um, I know as an undergrad, I did not. Uh, there were professors that I didn't talk to, and they were mostly men. And there were professors that I would go hang out in their offices, and they were mostly women. Um, yeah. So yeah, that's yeah. Being a being an instructor, a faculty member, a professor, deeply, deeply gendered, and not just in terms of like your hireability, um, because obviously, like universities are businesses, so professors are only as hireable as their capital. Um, and so in terms of like being hired, being promoted, that's deeply gendered, but also the labor you're required to do outside of just teaching, writing, publishing is massive. And how do you navigate kind of this position of authority and power um, from a gender nonconforming standpoint? Do you? And does it kind of affect the way that you interact with your students? Have you created new boundaries and things like that? Yeah, so um, it absolutely impacts the way that I teach and the way that I interact with my students. I am sure that if I came up against something that I felt was truly inappropriate for me to comment on, that I would create a boundary. I definitely have provided feedback and emotional support for students going through non-academic things, and I cannot imagine having turned them away. But in terms of just teaching, I mean, I think if, if we're really honest, we're talking about gender in terms of the university or in academia writ large, right? Like academia and the university are businesses and they're businesses that are largely upheld by white supremacy and emotional and intellectual violence. I think that my own experience with gender nonconformity has opened up a lot of freedoms and possibilities that don't exist within a binary. And I think that that same thinking can be applied to the the academy, right? I think that the academy often presents itself in terms of a network of uh, very hardline power structures and power dynamics. You have hard lines between the professor and the student. Um, you have hard lines between um, the faculty and the staff. You have hard lines between administration and the department. And 
all those lines do a lot of damage and all of those power structures do a lot of damage. And I think that in my exploration of gender, it's allowed me to stop policing a lot. Um, I've been pulling back a lot on policing. And I mean, it's things that I learned before I was an undergrad. It's having these like moments in real time where I have this like weird old voice telling me to react a certain way and sitting for a minute and being like, that is not conducive to actual academic growth. Let's not do that. Um, I think that the best way that I can explain it is that applying my own experience of queerness to my teaching practice has allowed me to at least try to start dismantling a lot of the dichotomies in academia that I find really poisonous and toxic. And yes, that absolutely comes with like having personal boundaries negotiated, blurred, crossed. Um, but I think that in terms of deciding, I mean, even just like minute things, right? Like I, in my class, I make a very big deal at the beginning of the semester to explain the fact that I'm a white faculty member, a white instructor, teaching a class that focuses predominantly on authors of color. Um, that's a really huge deal that I make sure to like explain very thoroughly in the beginning of my course um, and explain that like, like all people and definitely like all white people, I'm very fallible. I have been raised as a white person in the West. I have a set of preconceived notions and I've been working to like unpack a lot of those and undo a lot of those um, because I really just want to be here to sort of treat this literature with as much like love and respect and care as it deserves. I also work to make sure my students feel empowered to ask big questions that I might not be able to answer correctly or fully or at all. I think it's really important to portray myself as a fallible human in progress. I think that often professors are portrayed as these sort of like um, keeper keepers of the wisdom, which is just not true, right? Like we're only as smart as the last book we've read. Like, and I think a new wave of academia is starting to really like change the landscape of how this all runs. But unfortunately, we're all still sort of bound by these old systems of control and power. And so I think that the best thing that a lot of academics that I'm witnessing that are sort of colleagues and peers of mine age-wise are, are de-policing themselves and, and decolonizing syllabi. And, and I don't mean that in sort of like a trendy buzzword sort of way, but really like working to pull problematic references, working to um, expand the boundaries and limits of what we consider to be uh, um, good sources or appropriate academic sources. Um, I always try to encourage my students to cite and source things that are are not peer-reviewed journals as well, right? Like to, to seek outside the academy to back up your, your information um, and to really sort of like break down and destructure the way that we view authority in terms of academia and intelligence, because all of those measuring sticks are all super racist and classist and, and colonial and, and detrimental and upholding this. If, if we're just plugging in new theorists and not undoing the structure, we're not doing anything to make it better. Um, so yeah, I think that like, it's hard to, it's hard for me to like understand my queerness in like in isolation. Um, for me, like queerness is very much so tied to racism, liberation and, and women's liberation and, and liberating people who need liberation in general. Um, and so I think that like my queerness has really like um, pushed me into a space where I cannot not do these things, um, where I, I can't run a classroom 
and I feel like this is probably gonna be a problem at some point. I've been very lucky because I'm a student, you know, like I'm a, I'm a student faculty member. And so I've been able to get away with a lot of things um, that even other colleagues of mine uh, haven't. Um, and so I think that I'm very lucky. I think that I've had a lot of privilege and a lot of safety to be able to sort of interject my own opinions about all of this into my classroom. Um, but it always it always feels for the best. It always feels for the best. And I think there are students that find it odd or I mean, I think it's weird to go into a classroom and have your professor say academia is a nightmare and professors don't know anything, right? Like, I think that that's like a destabilizing um, experience. And I think especially in a school like Emory, where many of the students have been like primed since birth to expect something like Emory, um, which means they've been primed since birth to accept these power structures that Emory mirrors. And you walk into a classroom and your professor's like, oh, don't listen to anything I say or, you know, do do what do what you want. Here's some books. Um, but I think that that's like kind of the only way I know how to really move through a classroom anymore, um, which may bite me in the ass someday, <laughs> if I'm being honest. Like, uh, but for now, it's I, I feel very lucky. Yeah, that's really interesting. That kind of leads into um, some more questions. And if you feel like there really is like a present uh, currently spaces for non-binary faculty within academia, um, and even as you do your research, do you feel like your queerness informs your research? And, and if so, how? Yeah. So the first question is a great one. And I think that that's changing, right? I think that slowly, I mean, trans and non, gender nonconforming folks have always been in academia. I think stealth was the name of the game for a long time because, again, capitalism, right? Like you can only get hired if you're hireable. And so I think that visible queerness is really starting to expand in academia. I mean, I think that it's not, I think that visible queerness is still very white leaning. It's still very, in a lot of ways, binary leaning. Um, It's still very class privileged. But there are a lot more um, gender nonconforming professors of color uh, now than there were. I mean, even, so my undergrad, I was in college, like my undergraduate degree was from 2007 to 2011. um, And I couldn't tell you a single queer professor gender nonconforming or not in my department when I was there. Um, And it's very different now. And it's very different at Emory. Um, So I think that that's slowly changing. But I mean, like, like with all progress, we're also witnessing this massive nationwide legislative backlash against critical race theory, perceiving that as a singular I mean, it's very obvious, like like it always has been whenever there's sort of like a, a right-wing backlash to intellectualism, I guess is the word that they end up using a lot. Um, it's this clear misunderstanding of what a phenomenon is and then legislating against it immediately without understanding it. Um, so, you know, as space develops for gender nonconforming professors and more professors of color um, and more professors of color that are genderqueer, we're also seeing like an aggressive backlash against teaching anything about that. Um, And, you know, there's like a gap obviously between sort of like collegiate academia and um, high school academia, but also they feed directly into each other and they're one and the same. In terms of uh, does my gender nonconformity influence my research? Uh, I didn't think it was going to, but then it took over. Um, (laughs) So yeah, my my entire dissertation is basically about um, non-binary interpretations of time 
in Caribbean women's fiction. Yeah, so it's it's about- That's so cool. It is, and it's just like, I, you know, for a long time I really thought, and I'm not entirely sure what I was thinking in retrospect, but at the, for a long time I had like the literature that I loved and then I ha- and I was like, right, but like nobody can write about that because like you have to write about like things that the Academy cares about. And then it hit me in stages that like I just couldn't bring myself to do something like that, that I just was never going to be happy doing that. Um, and then my master's degree was like also a very strange experience because I did it in Ireland. It was a master's degree focused explicitly on Irish literature which was further away from medieval lit and closer to what I cared about, but still not entirely correct. Um, And I wrote my master's thesis on three novels that were published in like the mid to late 90s, early 2000s in Ireland about Irish lesbian culture. And I had a lot of backlash against that. Like my department was largely unsupportive of that thesis. And the only uh, person, the only faculty member who would be my advisor uh, was actually a graduate of Emory University. Um, And he had studied under a woman who is on my dissertation committee now, uh, which I find um, deeply endearing and very funny to me. Um, So around that moment, I was realizing like, the only literature that I really care about is literature that like clearly makes the system uncomfortable. And that's when I sort of started circling around. I got back to Caribbean literature when I was um, not in school and got back to this space where I was just like, oh, this is this is just, this is what I have to do. Like, this is what's important. Um, and so for me, like, the narratives that I study really remind me of the space that I grew up in. And I felt for a long time like I had this weird understanding of time that was not conducive or aligned with uh, what I probably very annoyingly would have called mainland time when I was a teenager. And so the idea of like working with um, time in the Caribbean and time in Caribbean literature. And now it's sort of morphed into this project that um, really confronts global warming as a colonial crisis and um, confronts the long-term effects of um colonialism and capitalism on the environment and the way the environment is sort of collapsing as a result of this and the kinds of unique perceptions of time that we will lose when our environments collapse. So it's super cheery. Um, (laughs) um, But it's that sounds so interesting, though, especially how you kind of arrived there. Yeah. I mean, I feel like I keep using this word a lot, but I just feel so lucky. I feel so privileged. Like, I can't imagine writing about anything else because I can't imagine caring about anything else as much as I care about this. But yeah, I mean, even in terms of um, sort of backtracking slightly about how the way in which, like, uh, my identity informs my research and also my teaching is that, like, I sort of go through these, like, sort of double bits of labor because I, I have a really hard time applying, like, white male critical theory to... Uh, Caribbean women's literature. Um, and so I, you know, I sort of go out of my way to find sources that are that are appropriate and written by Caribbean authors and scholars. Um, but ugh, because of racism, they're much harder to find. Um, they're much more, it's much fewer and farther between. Um, and so doing that sort of double research where like, I know these things are true, but I need to find the right people saying them um, is such a challenge. And it's so frustrating. And it's also exactly the reason why we need to talk about this more often. 
because it shouldn't be like you, sh- it shouldn't be a challenge to find people writing about their own literature. Um, but it is. And as someone who is now a white scholar writing scholarship about Caribbean literature, um, I'm caught in this like very weird uh, tension point where I um, would never cite myself. <laughs> I would never cite myself. Um, but the work still needs to keep happening. Um, so it's this very odd yeah, it's a very odd tension. So I, I do what I can to sort of identify things about these texts um, that people have identified already in isolation. And my main goal is to sort of like pull all of these identif- identifications together um, and present them as like a singular unit because they are, um, they're just not being treated like that. So pulling together these these citations and these sources and these texts and all these really amazing authors. And there's just like, there's a phenomenal wave of um, literature and academia that is coming out of um, Caribbean spaces, but also um, like black women authors and black femme authors. And it's a really cool time to be writing and researching um, because while it is a challenge, the, the work exists. Um, it just, you just have to go look for it. And it's a lot easier to accidentally stumble through some crusty, JSTOR article by a white guy in the 70s than it is to sort of like find these like much more like nuanced and difficult to track down pieces that are being published like a month ago right um but it's really cool because I'm writing about contemporary literature and I can't imagine using like non-contemporary criticism to back that up either right like there's no point in using like articles from the 70s to talk about a novel that was written in 2019 it's not going to apply it's a different world um, so yeah, my, my identity definitely like influences my research because it, much in the same way that it does in my classroom where I'm just sort of constantly running into my own mental police and asking them to, to vacate the premises while I undo a lot of the damage that I've done to myself and also that the Academy has done just sort of as I've moved through time, I guess. Are there other measures that the university should take to improve the experiences of gender non-conforming students and faculty? Yes. Um, I think that there are like very basic things that can be done. I think in terms of like, if we're talking real equity, um, I think that there should be like trained advisors and counselors available to students and faculty and staff um, that can help guide you through these processes because I really had no idea what I was getting myself into when I started this. Um, and I mean, like, just as an adult in the world, uh, like I'm 32, so I have a lot of like paper trails, right? Like I have a lot of stuff with my name on it. Um, so I think it took probably from the date that I called Atlanta Legal Aid asking for help with the paperwork to the date that I finished getting my like last billing account transferred into my new name was about six and a half months. Um, so it's, it's a lengthy process. It's costly. Um, There are ways that you can apply for um, funding through like Atlanta Legal Aid, but that requires more legal steps and appearing in front of a judge, um, which is deeply triggering and like very uh, traumatizing for a lot of people, um, myself included, but like just in general. Um, I think in terms of like very basic things that Emory can do um, is streamline the way that they handle name changes in general. I think that Schools are writ large are going to start coming up against more and more people who are actively changing their names while they're enrolled. 
Um, and there need to be people who know how to navigate this process within the structure of the academy um, that can help you with this. Because I remember the, the earliest stages was just me sort of blindly emailing HR reps and like asking, like, I don't know what this looks like. I don't know what to do with this. Where do I go? What do I need to do? Um, so like somebody that like somebody in-house that can guide you through the steps is helpful. Um, I have a, also, again, a unique role at the school because I'm both enrolled as a student, but I'm also an instructor. So I had to do three different rounds of like name change update stuff. So I did update myself with HR so I could keep getting paid. I had to update myself through um, like the campus directory as an individual so that I could change my email address. Um, and then I had to like triple check with student health to make sure that like my name change extended through student health so that my health insurance would stay real. And I think a really good thing that Emory could start with um, would be making space for students to change their email alias so that it matches up with their new name. However, whatever process of like legal, and I understand that there are like complications to that but no one's really going to be changing their email address name unless they really want to um and the fact that i did have to use like my dead name emory email for the entire semester of teaching it did not get changed until finals week so it was a whole semester and granted like i had amazing students i did not um run into any real problems um, in the classroom, it was fine. But I mean, even things like I submitted an article to be um, under review for publication, and I had to explain to the editors like, oh, by the way, the email address name is fake. This name is real. Um, because even though I got my name legally changed in March, I couldn't get it changed with through Emory until May. And it's just these sort of like logistical bureaucratic steps that are annoying at best and traumatizing at worst. Um, I felt like I had enough distance, and I think the pandemic really helped with this, but I felt like I had enough distance to where it wasn't, I wouldn't call it traumatizing, but it was a huge pain in the ass. Um, and just like, yeah, the, the bureaucracy of the procedure was the most painful part. Um, if we're talking about real equity, I think that Emory should help pay for students to get their name changes. I think that Emory has more than enough money to drop 200 bucks on a legal name change through the city of Atlanta. I think that that would be a great step for Emory to take. Um, I think that hiring sort of like equity officers who are trained in this to help guide students and faculty and staff through the process at Emory, submitting stuff for them would be really helpful. Um, yeah, I think there are a lot of like little steps and most of them are just like really boring logistical things um, like yeah. HR, Li like lining up HR with with the the roster. Right. Um, and I think in all honesty, my I think that in the very core of my Microsoft Outlook account still reflects my dead name because they would have to completely delete my account and restart it in order to like confirm that change and that might be just like a microsoft outlook issue and not yeah. an emory issue but like again we're talking about like massive structural messes but yeah i think that in terms of there are like both like social supports that emory could definitely start enacting now um and then more technical like it based issues like sort of streamlining those processes so you don't have to submit paperwork to three different people um, to make sure that you still can like go to the dentist and also email people. <laughs> um, right. 
Yeah, like I think for sure. And I think also like if we're talking about like real equity, we're talking about like money and we're talking about positions and we're talking about assistance and like real people that exist to like help guide Emory employees and students through this process. Yeah. Do you have any advice for um, non-binary students at Emory or just in academia in general? Yeah. um, It's so funny. I mean, just the way that uh, this discussion has changed even since I was an undergrad. um, There are I mean, the fact that we have, dig- oh God, dating myself, but like when I, when I, it was different when I left college, but when I got accepted to college, you still needed a college email address to get into Facebook. And it wasn't the thing that it is now. And also there was no TikTok, there was no Vine, there was no Instagram, there was no nothing. Um, so my advice would be find other, find other queers, like find other gender nonconforming people. Um, talk to them about your experience. Talk to them about how your identity impacts your ability to navigate academia. It's hard. It's harder. Um, and I think, I think the like sort of uniquely painful aspect of being gender nonconforming in academia is that academia does so much work to advertise itself as this um, beacon of like intellectualism and awareness. And it just isn't right. Like it just is maintained by white supremacy and classism neither of which are interested in gender nonconformity. And so I think that um, the great lie of academia, right, is that it's this like really lovely, accepting, welcoming place, and it just isn't. And so I think that navigating the pitfalls of that lie are really traumatic and really hard. And you could come out to the wrong instructor. You could come out to the wrong faculty member, you know? Like I, I was so grateful when students came out to me because I can't imagine being that age and coming out to a professor. Um, And again, it was different when I was in college, but not that different. Um, Academia is filled with really awful people. It's filled with really unaccepting and closed-minded people. Um, I think if you find faculty members you feel safe with, reach out. If you are in positions where you do not feel safe, keep yourself safe. Um, protect yourself, Um, find peers, find colleagues, find like-minded individuals and spend time with them. Um, There are a lot of amazing like digital resources for gender nonconforming people, but there's really nothing better than being in a group of people physically. And obviously with the pandemic, that sort of puts a lot of limitations on that as well for doing that safely. But, um, oh God, get vaccinated. (laughs) get vaccinated now um and keep washing your hands and wearing a mask um but in terms of of gender nonconformity find find your people find your communities and spend time with them and invest deeply emotionally in these communities because when push comes to shove the community has your back um in a way that institutionals institutional structures never will maybe will but i wouldn't want to put those words in anyone's mouth Thank you so much for talking with us and for your advice. We really appreciate it. Yeah, of course. It was really like lovely to have you reach out. Um, this has been really nice. And it's also just like the questions are really lovely because like I did so much of this in isolation and uh, a lot of these thoughts I've had sort of like in the you know, chewing on the back of your head, but like you don't talk to yeah. people about it because like who would be there? Like who would you talk to about them? Um, so yeah, maybe sort of like reflect on the past couple of years and my experiences and how grateful I am to have had um, 
some really awesome students. Like real, like my students really made this like amazing. I'm sure that it could have been a nightmare. My students were fantastic. Thank you for listening. This has been your host, Rachel Brown. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and share within the margins to hear new stories from the Emory community. Join us next time as we chat with international students across campus and make sure to watch out for the latter half of our series on being non-binary at Emory. Within the Margins is produced by Brahmi Balarajan, Viviano Barreto, Rachel Brown, Ethan Anthony, Gabriella Lewis, and Isabel Packard. Editing by Ethan Anthony. Cover art by Mia Usman and music by Jeffrey Rosen.